Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and your church. How you continue to bind us together, you continue to form us, and we invite you this morning to continue that work, that we would become more obedient disciples, Lord, that we would be more formed by your spirit into the image of the likeness of your son, Jesus. Yeah, this morning we invite you, by the power of, of your resurrection, continue to, to make us new. Breathe your new life into us. Stir us to worship. Open our eyes to things that maybe we, we haven't seen. Yeah, we pray that there would be a newness uh, to your word, even in familiar passages. That your gospel would, uh, would be heard and received differently this morning. That we'd see all these things from a different angle. Yeah, that we'd be able to, yeah, to see your glory and your goodness in a, a unique way this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5 of Romans, this is beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope and the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Yeah, this morning I want to preach a sermon on a mother's love. I'm just kidding, guys. I, I don't have that sermon um, at all. I'm not that sentimental. I'm not that good at that. And um, I do think it's fun sometimes to, uh, to think about some of the sermons I used to hear where we try to bend scripture to, uh, to talk about mothers uh, pretty well. I think every sermon uh, is to mothers, and there are places in this sermon where, where my mind was moved there, but um, I was thinking of something else this week. Uh, like, maybe you, you've been aware of it. I, surely you have. In the last few years, there's been this, this move, uh, this sort of tendency uh, toward adopting a language of, of skepticism in our culture, more so than, than normal. 
a, a language of, of doubt, right? Like the, the current buzzword that you've probably heard over and over again, it's almost become a cliche at this point, is deconstruction. Deconstruction is a word that we hear people using a lot, right? And it's a philosophical term from the middle of the 20th century. Maybe you studied it in college at some point, maybe you didn't, but they're using it slightly different, right? Um, and the idea is even believing people, like even church people, Christians, sometimes are saying that they're deconstructing their faith. They're, they're deconstructing Christianity, deconstructing the church as they have known it. The idea is that we kind of like take it apart piece by piece and we look at what is there. And from what we see, we can eliminate those components of faith that have always kind of bothered us. Those things that don't resonate with who we are or who we believe God to be. Those things that seem antiquated and disconnected and irrelevant to our lives now. And it's, it's been this, this big buzz, but really it, it's not new. If you, you know anything about the history of the church, pretty well from day one, there were really hard conversations being had. There were skeptics. There were people who were questioning things. And the other thing that we have to recognize is that it's, it's not always negative. Now, obviously, it can become really toxic and really unhealthy for a lot of people, especially when they decide to deconstruct as individuals by themselves and decide what they think is best on their own, right? But it's not always negative. And one of the benefits of this whole conversation is we're forced to ask the question, what about what we believe is unique? What about Jesus is actually unique? Is Jesus unique? How is the church or Christianity different from any other path that you could have chosen for yourself? It forces us to ask these questions, right? Or is it really just the same as every other religious project throughout human history, really designed to control you, to oppress, to suppress who you really are? Like, I'm, I'm caricaturing a little bit there, but that's how a lot of people feel. When they think about a word like religion or spirituality, when they think about the church, for a lot of people, that's something they think of. And the question we're forced to ask as we do all of this is, how is Jesus different from that? Is he actually different from that? And what Paul is writing in Romans 5 is, it's like the remedy for that kind of religion. It's the remedy for that kind of spirituality. In just like a few verses, Paul is dismantling, or we could say Paul is, is deconstructing the way we normally talk about faith. He's undoing the way we normally talk about spirituality. He starts with this idea of hope. He says, we boast. You hear Paul say that a lot in the New Testament. We boast. The word means to like rejoice and celebrate. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoicing in hope. That, that, that makes sense. Like, what religion do you know? There are very few that would not say they're trying to move you towards some greater hope. I think all religion is, is at some level about hope. So that kind of makes sense. We rejoice in hope. Okay, so this kind of just fits in. But then Paul says, not only so, but we rejoice we boast in our suffering. That, that's unique. That, that doesn't 
that doesn't fit into the way we normally think about spirituality, right? That's unique among all these other religious or spiritual ideas floating around in our society. It's a little bit different. The idea of our Savior, our redemptive figure, our Messiah, our Lord and God, the one that we worship, having been crucified. Now that's enough to shock anybody. It did shock people. That was part of the problem in the early church. People could not accept this. It was hard for them to swallow that there could be joy in the midst of that kind of suffering. That there could be life in the midst of that worst and most humiliating form of death. How? That is unique to Jesus. There's this, uh, this song lyric, uh, one of my favorites. It's uh, Robin Pecknold from Fleet Foxes. He wrote this song years ago, and it came to mind as I was thinking about this sermon. He, he has this line. He says, I was raised up believing that I was somehow unique, like a, a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. But now after some thinking, I say I would rather be a, a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. He's talking about the way we're always taught that we're unique. Right? We, always, we want to be unique. We long for that. And the truth is, like, we, we realize at some point in our lives that we're not. We have so much in common. Our brokenness, our struggles, our joys. Like, we're not that unique. But God... God is unique, we say. That's what the substance of holiness is. He's distinct. He's different. He's unique. And this is important. I'm not trying to preach some sort of like polemical sermon or some apologetic sermon where I'm telling you our way is the best way. Let me prove it to you. Jesus is the only way and I will prove it to you, which you see happen a lot. That's not what I'm doing. But we do have to acknowledge this is unique. He goes on. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, while we were still helpless, sometimes in Greek it's translated as sickness, while we were still sick, when we'd not found healing and wholeness yet, while we were still sinners, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. God loves the ungodly, the unreligious, the unspiritual, the unenlightened. God loves and has acted upon that love. To say that God loves the ungodly, to say that Jesus died for the ungodly might be the most unreligious thing you can say. It does not fit into the way we think about spirituality. It does not fit into the way we think about religion. Fleming Rutledge has been really helpful. I've been reading this book called The Crucifixion uh, since the beginning of Lent, I guess, and I'm finishing it now and have found her to be really helpful if you're interested in, in thinking more about that. But consider this. When we think about religion in all of its forms, it's always about becoming more godly, whatever that looks like to any particular person. It's about becoming more spiritual. It's about becoming something other than you are right now, right? It's about spiritual development, maybe even like self-improvement, so that in doing so, I can gain access to God or to some reward, some promise. If I do this, I can expect 
as I become more like God, I will be accepted by God. I will find enlightenment. I will find whatever, right? This is how we generally think about faith or religion. And Paul says Christ died for the ungodly, for the unspiritual. God loves ungodly people. That is like anti-religion as we know it. It doesn't fit into that little window. Anytime we think about God, we always imagine that he is going to require something of us. He must. It would be unfair otherwise. God must require something of us. We must owe something. Some of the debt must be ours. Yet Paul is saying, Christ has required nothing from me and everything of his son Jesus while I was a sinner for the ungodly. That is different. I have racked my brain trying to think of, of other, and I, I did the, in undergrad, my minor was religion, and I'm sitting here racking my brain trying to remember the places where other religions kind of like coincide with that idea, and it's different. The whole concept of, of religion or spirituality is that I become better, I become holier, I become more godly, and then... And only then can I expect to receive anything. Only then can I expect that God will respond or the gods will respond or whatever. And that is not Jesus. It's unique what Paul is saying here. Like, this, is, this is dangerous stuff that Paul is preaching. It's the sort of thing that, that bothers us a little bit. Think about it. Religion in, in most of its forms, think of, of whatever you know. Maybe you say, I don't have that much exposure to, exposure to other religions, but, but just think of the ones you know well. Most religion, and this is often a criticism, especially by somebody like Karl Marx, right? Religion is about escaping suffering, trying to deal with suffering, trying to make sense of suffering. In some way or another, we're trying to escape suffering, the human problem of, of pain, and the sense that we get through religion or spirituality is, is that if I do enough good, God won't let me go through painful things anymore, right? And in the occasion that I should suffer, if I will change my ways and do what is right, God will recognize it, he will respond. The gods will recognize it and respond. The universe itself, as I put this good out into the universe, I will receive more good. This is the way we think about it. I will be helped in that way. Even philosophically, in Paul's day, in Greek philosophy, you saw this happening. The Stoics, many people compare Paul to the Stoics. The Stoics would teach that you just have to learn to accept suffering. You're not going to be able to explain it. You just have to accept it. It's part of human existence. And you can spend your life fighting against it, but there's no use. Accept it. It's part of life, right? And so for them, for the Stoic, suffering could at least become noble, right? You embrace it. You recognize it's just part of being human and you grow through it, right? That sounds a little bit familiar, but a Stoic would never say, you rejoice in your suffering. That's, that's not where they go with it. It's different. Think about Buddhism. In all of its, its forms, there's so many different forms of Buddhism. I know it's not one monolithic religion, but Buddhism is generally going to teach that suffering is a problem, yes, but I have to rise above suffering. I have to rise above the very idea 
that, that, that I don't want to experience suffering, right? That desire for something better, I have to rise above it. That longing that I experience, I have to rise above it. And when I do so, only then can I break this cycle of karma, of reincarnation. Only then can I be enlightened. Only then am I set free. But they would never say that I should rejoice in suffering. That's not the way. I have to rise above it. They would never say that it was something worth celebrating. Think about just culturally. Go outside of religion. Step outside of the way we think about spirituality. Think about culturally all the ways that it's true there as well. Like what we're saying doesn't just offend my, my religious sensibilities. It offends my modern sensibilities, my modern Western American sensibilities. It isn't just religious people who are looking to, to escape suffering. Our culture is always looking to escape suffering. Our modern lives are built around the avoidance of suffering, around convenience at whatever cost is necessary. Everything that we're being sold always is that. How do you make your life easier? And it offends us to think of this. Because we distance ourselves from suffering at every turn. We don't want to experience it ourselves. We don't really want to be around the suffering of other people. I hear people say all the time, like, I, I don't like hospitals. And they're not talking about the smell. They're not talking about the, the weird people walking in and out and having to wash your hands and the whole thing. That, I don't like hospitals, they say. Because it's a hard thing to confront that kind of suffering and pain. I don't like funerals. I know so many people who don't like funerals. I don't want to go to funerals. I don't want to have to, to confront that sort of pain. I don't want to deal with that. We try to separate ourselves from it at, at every possible turn. We don't want to see it in the news. It bothers us to consume too much. We recognize it can feel toxic at some point. And as far as we're concerned in our society, the continual march of progress, the development of technology means that I won't have to suffer much longer. The more things develop, the more things change, I'm not supposed to have to deal with this anymore. We're always being sold a utopia, a perfect society, where all of these problems go away. We can fix it. We can make suffering better so that we don't have to deal with it anymore. And Paul has the nerve to say, boast in your sufferings. Rejoice in your sufferings. Celebrate it. Paul's reasoning is this. We know that suffering produces perseverance. Okay, that sounds a little bit like a stoic. We know that perseverance produces character. Okay, you could make me uh, a better person, etc., etc. But then he says, and character, hope. That's what he's, he's moving us toward, right? So hopefully you've heard us say something like this before. Suffering isn't wasted. That's something we believe. The cross teaches us that suffering is never meaningless. It feels that way, but it is not. God is using these things. He can take something terrible and use it, right? Suffering isn't just some cosmic coincidence. It's not just some terrible fortune that, that seems to always show up at your doorstep more than other people's. Suffering is producing something. It's forming something. It's forming you. Perseverance and character but it's this next thing, right? 
Paul says it makes us more than resilient. It teaches us more than perseverance. It makes us more than just people of integrity and strength and depth. He says, suffering produces hope. Again, that doesn't make any sense when we think about the way we normally approach spirituality. That's the thing that every religion is after, I think we could say. Hope. But they don't get to it through suffering. Every religion is after real and concrete hope. Not just pie in the sky hope at some point in the future, but like hope that affects my here and now, right? And Paul says, suffering produces that. Suffering gives us hope in the life of a believer, right? Every religion's after it, and suffering can give it to you. Now, every new age, technological, progressive vision of society, every utopia that you're being sold, it's always hope. But the painful reality of what Paul is saying is that we're, we're a people who are always avoiding suffering. And so we will remain a society that is largely without hope. If we're constantly running from suffering, if we're constantly trying to avoid suffering, if we're constantly trying to distance ourselves from suffering, we will remain a people who are without hope. If we're always trying to get away from it. If what Paul is saying is true, by avoiding suffering, by seeking ease, by always looking for an escape when I sense it coming, we never find the lasting hope that's being offered to us in the midst of the pain. And I think we get this in a season like Easter, right? If we're searching for a way around the cross, we recognize intuitively that we will never get to experience the joy of resurrection. Paul is saying, not that the only way to hope is through suffering, but that if we distance ourselves from suffering, we're going to lose the hope that we so long for. And I don't think that the problem in our society currently is that we don't acknowledge our pain or acknowledge our suffering. I think you could say through most of American history, we're pretty stoic people. We don't talk about it a whole lot. You're just supposed to be strong and endure it and accept it. It's just part of it, right? Right now, we're not living through that kind of moment. People are, are talking about their feelings. They're talking about the things they're dealing with. They're learning to articulate their pain, to articulate their wounds, to articulate the traumatic experiences they've walked through, the painful things that they're presently living through, and it's a good thing, right? We as a, a generation, I think, value authenticity and transparency, but the thing we have to accept is that there is a thin line between what we call authenticity and cynicism. A very thin line, and it doesn't take much to cross over. And you know somebody like this. You know people like this. They know how to articulate their pain. In fact, that's all they ever do. They're always talking about what painful thing they're wrestling with. And it's exhausting for you to listen to, but it's exhausting for them. And they live without hope. Because they've drifted more from authenticity into something more like cynicism. Nothing seems to be good about it. They don't expect hope to come from it as they articulate their pain, right? We don't always look for the ways in which this unfortunate moment that we're living through is producing hope. We don't see joy. And that's because we know how to complain. We know how to protest. Some of those things have their place. 
who don't know how to grieve in hope. And that's the picture that we're given in the New Testament. Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? He's talking to a group of people who are wrestling with the coming of Jesus. They thought it would already have happened by now. They thought they would have experienced the resurrection that was promised to them. They thought they would have seen the kingdom come in this way that they were expecting to the fullness of the kingdom. And Paul says, remember that we do not grieve as those without hope. We have to learn to grieve in hope. But we're people who generally just know how to name our suffering. And in naming our suffering and articulating our pain, we're mostly just wishing it away. That's why we want to talk about it. To say that we wish it wasn't happening. To say that we hope it will end soon. And that's the way we see it. And of course we do. I'm not standing up here condemning you and saying like, not me. This is our perspective, and, and of course we feel that way, right? Paul isn't trying to argue for you that suffering in and of itself is positive and good and enjoyable if you can just see it the right way. No, suffering is terrible. Suffering is painful. But to live cynically, thinking that life is painful, life is unfair, that the whole cosmos seems to hate you, to wish away our pain and our suffering, Paul says, is to wish away the very hope that we desire. There is hope to be found in suffering. And if you distance yourself from suffering, you are distancing yourself from the hope that God is trying to offer you in the midst of it. This hope, Paul says, that we have in suffering, that's unique. It's different. It is distinct from every religion, every spirituality, every utopian society. It's different. And I think it's what makes Jesus worth following. This particular thing that he does. But, but Paul goes further, right? He says something even more bombastic, even more startling than all of this, right? Because he has to articulate the substance of this hope that he's talking about, right? Paul has to articulate what he means, why we have hope in the middle of suffering. You can't just say something like that and not explain yourself. And so he says, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, while we were still sick, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, if you've ever read Romans, maybe you have, maybe you ha haven't, that's okay. In chapter 2, there's this thing he's doing. He's getting at the way we tend to judge people. We judge one another. We pass judgment, and he says, when you do so, you only pass judgment on yourself. You're guilty of the same things. And he says, don't you know that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. God's kindness, God's mercy, God's forgiveness precedes our repentance. It's not the other way around, which is how we tend to think about religion or spirituality. And so this is kind of the natural progression from there. Religion, spirituality as we know it, is always like an if-then scenario. It's always if-then. If you can hold up your end of the bargain, if you become better, if you can do better, if you change your ways, if you hold up your end, then God will be kind to you. Then God will be good to you. Then God will offer you this thing that you're longing for, whether it's salvation or enlightenment or ease, whatever it might be. It's always a transaction. It's always a trade-off. That's the way it functions. But the key word in the gospel is not if-then. The gospel of Jesus, the key word is, is still. 
while we were still sinners, Paul says. God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, Christ still chose to die a humiliating death that we might understand the intensity of God's love for us. Before we could respond, before we could react, God lost everything for us on the chance that we might be changed, knowing that he could make us change. There's not really much in the way of of a promise of return on his investment, and yet he's done it anyway. That doesn't sound like a transaction, because it isn't. Religion is like God is trying to make a deal with you. The universe is making a deal with you, right? This is how the world works. If you do this, then you'll get good things. You put good things in and you'll get good things back, right? This is not a bargain. This is not a deal. God is not trying to make a deal with you. God is losing everything in order to have you. That's it. And I think sometimes we, we, we articulate it pretty well. Come as you are, right? Bring all of your mess with you. God will accept you anyway. Like what Paul is saying is, come worse than you are. As, as negative as your thoughts are about yourself, and I think we have some pretty self-deprecating thoughts. We tend towards this. There's some pretty self-destructive thoughts sometimes. And Paul is saying, as self-destructive as you may be, as self-loathing as you may be, come worse than you are, and you will find yourself loved. The word he's using, ungodly, is different from the word in Greek for sinners. Hamartaloi is what you see all over the New Testament. Sinners, right? And that means like the general sense in which we're all sinners. None of us can escape this. We're all broken, and we're all capable of, of pretty terrible things. There's this general sense, and that is true. Paul believes that. We believe that. But there's this other word that sometimes accompanies this idea that we are all sinners. It's different. That's the ungodly. These aren't just people who are general sinners. This is somebody who has intentionally chosen to live in opposition to God. Someone who knows better, and they sin with intent. They sin in rebellion. They're making a statement in what they're doing. In the Old Testament, they call it high-handed sin. And all of the sacrifices that we know from the Old Testament are not for those people, by the way. They're for people who incidentally sin, accidentally sin, to be ungodly, to be rebellious. The sacrifices that you know from the Old Testament don't deal with that. That's not what those are for. And Paul says, God chose to demonstrate the intensity of his love by letting Jesus die for those kinds of people. God chose to die for the ungodly. Now that is either captivating to you or it's terrifying to you. Maybe it's both. I think, I think it probably should be both. And I hope it's, it's both for us. I hope that endures, that we're always captivated by it and always a little terrified by it. It should be captivating to us, right? That, that God loves people like us, right? People who are showing up to church. People who are, who are trying to become more faithful disciples of Jesus. People who are reading scripture. People who are trying to pray. People who are trying to love their neighbor. 
that's beautiful to know that in spite of the fact that as I try to do all of these things, I fail and I, I make mistakes and I sin. God still loves me, right? That's beautiful. That's captivating. But it's terrifying to think that God doesn't just love people like me. God loves his enemies. And God loves my enemies. God loves the ungodly. He loves the people who stand against everything that I hold most precious. He loves those people. That is hard to swallow. That, that, that feels a little dangerous that Paul could say that. It feels like he's enabling something, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing over and over again. It's part of what gets him killed. Over and over again, we find ourselves wrestling with this. Jesus he tells this amazing parable, or according to how you see it, this very frustrating parable in Matthew 20. You might remember it, maybe you don't. I'll give you some of the details. We don't have to read it. In Matthew 20, he tells the parable, we call it, of the, the workers in the vineyard. You remember? Maybe you remember. Jesus says, there's this owner of a vineyard, and uh, he, he wants some people to come and work in his vineyard. So he hires a group of men to do this. They agree on this rate of pay for the entire day. This is how much you will be paid for today's work. They agree to it, they're good with it, and they go to work. And then later in the day, some more people show up. They're going to work, and the owner sends them out. They agree to this same amount of money. They will work less time, but they will get paid the same amount of money. And then even later, it happens again. There's this cycle, this pattern. People keep showing up later and later into the day, and the owner of the vineyard gives them the same deal. You work for me today, and I'll give you this amount of money. It's obnoxious. It's infuriating. The people who've been working there all day through the heat of the day, start to finish, from early in the morning to late at night, by the end of it, they're furious. This is unjust. And Jesus says the owner of the vineyard asks a question that we all have to, to hear and respond to. He says, you agreed to work for this amount of money. You were happy with this amount of money at the beginning of the day. You were good with this. We made a deal. And he asked this question, are you envious because I am generous? Are you scandalized by my generosity? Tell me, is that the problem you have, that I'm just too generous? Does the scandalous generosity of God bother you? Because I think if we're all being real, it does. Like we're bothered by this kind of generosity. You cannot be that, that generous. And that's what makes Jesus unique. Is that Jesus' generosity does not conform to the way you think faith or religion or spirituality should work. It doesn't conform to the way you think God should operate. It makes him unique. And I think it's, it's just captivating enough to make us think maybe it's actually real. Because all the ways that we normally think about it, this is in opposition to. Maybe this actually comes from God and not from man. Maybe this is real. Maybe this is true. Maybe this is good. We have to consider it. But the question we wrestle with is, how can such a system work? So many people would say, like, how can that work, right? If you do this, if you love ungodly people, if they know that, how do you motivate them to do good? How do you motivate them to become better, right? 
What are you going to do so that they will actually change? You can't motivate them to change by loving them when they were their worst. What conclusions will they make? Paul knows this, right? He knows that for many people that will be a concern. He knows that there will be many people in the church who will twist this and manipulate it to live the life that they've always wanted to live. They will do as they please forever, and they will stamp Jesus' name on it and say, hey, Jesus loves me. I've had people say this to me. This still goes on. The church is full of people who are doing this, and we cannot stand the idea that God would, would let something like this happen. Paul knows this is going to be our objection, so he begins the next chapter with a question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Shall we become more ungodly since God loves ungodly people? If God loves ungodly people, I can be ungodly. Shall we, shall we become more sinful that we might receive more of God's grace? And he says, by no means. We died to sin. How could we live in it any longer, right? God has something better in mind for us than death. There's something better in store. Why would I continue to live that silliness? Paul says at the end of chapter 5, if we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life, right? If God has demonstrated his love, his forgiveness, if God has brought us back to himself through the death of Jesus, if he's forgiven us and saved us through his death, how much more can the resurrection do in us? How much more can his life do in us? It could only get better. There could only be more hope. There could only be more joy if that's the case. This is why Paul can say, not only... Do we rejoice in hope? We rejoice even in suffering because even suffering brings us to hope. There's still something better ahead. There's this fierce optimism in Paul in the way that he sees what God is capable of. God can be this generous because God has the means. God can do things that we can't. Every time we've tried to be that generous, We've ended up being manipulated. It's come up short. It doesn't work. But God has different tools at his disposal, right? God can be generous in a way that, that we cannot. Every time we come to the table, every time we're remembering the death of Jesus, Paul says, we're reminding ourselves of the incredible possibility, not just of Jesus' death, but his resurrection at work in me, right? God isn't just generous with, with forgiveness. God hasn't just forgiven you. God has given you something beyond that. God isn't just generous with his grace. God is generous with his very spirit. God doesn't give you forgiveness. He doesn't offer something incredible to you and say, now be better. He gives you his spirit and he makes you what he desires for you to be. And all he's asking you to is simply to receive the Spirit. That's it. He's just that generous. He's just that kind. And yes, that's scandalous. Yes, that's, that's unique. And yeah, it, it may bother you a little bit. Because maybe you've worked really hard to try to become something. And you find yourself frustrated. It doesn't seem to be yielding anything in your life. Jesus is not like any other thing you've known. 
Jesus is unraveling all of the ways we thought God should work and spirituality should work. Jesus is offering you something better. And so we invite you in these moments as the band comes. Come and tear off a piece of bread. Come and take a cup. Then just move back to your seats. Continue to sing with us. Continue to reflect. And then we'll all come back up together and do this together. Father, I pray that you would, um, you would open our eyes to a God is more, who is more generous than we could ever imagine. A God who's more generous than we would like for him to be sometimes. A God who's not just generous to us as we fail, but who is generous to the worst kinds of people. A God who's not just generous to victims, but to perpetrators. And God, we confess that scares us sometimes. Because we have in mind our judgments. We have in mind our justice. And God, we pray that that the gospel of your son Jesus would overwhelm all of that. That we would find ourselves so filled with joy in what you're offering us. That we would long to see others experience it. Even when we've been hurt by them. um, Even when we struggle with who they are. And God, we pray that your generosity would become more evident in who we are. That your grace, your mercy, the scandalous reality of who you are and of your cross would mark us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.